Hey everyone, and welcome to another episode of One Step Beyond. This is a podcast about transformation through leadership. On our show, we have conversations with people who are creating change in business, in their community, and in their own lives by choosing to lead. This is about daring to overcome barriers, push past limitations, and reshape our present and our future. Today, we're talking to Robert Fish, and we're going to be discussing deviating from the norm. Robert started his journey at the age of 15 when he began recording and touring in various punk bands through the 80s and early 90s. And I can say the bands that he's played in had a huge impact on me as a kid and also as an adult. After having his first child, Robert took a job at Kinko's, which started his 15-year journey from cashier to managing director, followed by a vice president's role at Massage MV Franchising. Today, Robert is the president and CEO of PCRK Group, which owns and operates Massage Envy franchise locations across 10 states. The lessons he's learned and work ethic he developed in the punk scene have continued to play an instrumental role in how he approaches his professional career. So before we get started, I want to thank our sponsors, SE Electronics, and if you haven't yet, then please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. So let's get to the episode. This is a very cool conversation. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and this is One Step Beyond. Hey everyone, welcome back. So as I mentioned in our intro, today we are talking to Rob Fish, which is someone that I have looked up to both personally and professionally in my life. Uh, He's a very successful business leader, as well as being a a really celebrated musician from the music scene that I'm a part of. And today we're going to be talking about deviating from the norm. So Rob, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. So uh, this is a cool topic because both creatively and professionally, I think you really encapsulate what it means to just like blaze your own path, deviate from the norm, remake it in your own image. So both personally, professionally, creatively, from a starting point, what does deviating from the norm mean to you? You know, I think it, if I had to sum it up with one word, I'd say authenticity. Um, I think it's the ability to, and I think it happens over time, but Develop confidence in, in who you are, how you see yourself relating with the world around you, whether it's in art or, or, or in business. And I think putting yourself in the, in the place of, of your consumer or in the place of your listener. Um, and and you know, how, do you, how do you authentically deliver um, who you are in, in whatever setting you're, you're talking about, whether it's music or business? Um, how do you, how do you embed the way that you think, uh, the way that you feel, uh, the way that you want to be treated, how you want to treat others? How do you embed all of that in terms of the way that you, you communicate and conduct yourself? Um, you know, I think, uh, just like everybody, I, I've got a million and one influences. And one of the things I learned early on in life was that, there's never one, there's never going to be one influencer in your life that you can look at the totality of who they are as a person and go, my God, I believe in all of it. 
right? There are plenty of musicians that, that I can listen to their records and have this incredibly deep connection. And especially now in the days of the internet, you know, you can start to find out more about that person than maybe you ever wanted to. And, um, <laughs> Morrissey, and, but, Morrissey, what have you done? Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I, luckily for me, um, my preference for the Smiths was more around Johnny Marr than it was Morrissey. Um, yeah. so I haven't had the same thing, but I know a lot of the, uh, Southern California, especially <laughs> brethren, uh, that was a big one, but it's that idea of like, look, you're, you're going to encounter people throughout your life, uh, in, in every possible setting, um, who, who inspire you and, and, and who make you think differently about assumptions that you've had or choices that you've made. And you'd be a fool not to, not to consider those things and not to, um, allow them to, to challenge the way that you think or the way that you act. But at the mm -hmm. same time, ultimately, you have to be authentic with yourself. Um, and because in the long term, just like anything, you can hold your breath and you can, you can make yourself present a certain way. But at some point, that's going to fall away and you're left with who you are. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's always been trying to be as authentic as possible. And to me, that's that's what that kind of boils down to. Right if on. you're if you're authentic um, and you you continue to develop confidence in your authenticity, and you're not afraid to change and go back and say you're wrong, um, and be honest and upfront about how others' experiences or thoughts or words have influenced you, I think that's also part of the process, and that's also part of the authenticity. Yeah, one hundred percent. Okay, so. As a guy that I've, you know, see come up creatively and then also from the business world, it seems like you've really like honed your ability to deviate from the norm in a way that now ultimately works for you. You know, it, it's sure. like you've brought together all your different ways of doing things and you've figured out how to like really create a path that's like allows you to be successful while deviating from the norm. But also kind of reflecting on the path that I've seen you take creatively you know, in business. I'm wondering if that was always the case. So like your willingness and your ability or your kind of like need to deviate from the norm, did that ever not work for you? Um, I don't know that it necessarily was it that it didn't work, but I think, again, it, it, it took a lot of time um, to kind of understand who I was as a person, you know, not who I wanted to be, not who I want, how I wanted other people to view me, but to really figure out like who I was and where I sat. So for example, musically, you know, I'd say the first four years or three years, whatever, that I was doing music in bands, there was very little authentic about it. And that was because I didn't know who I was. Yeah. Um, and I especially did not have confidence um, in, in the things that I was going through. So in you know, my, my first musical endeavors, I, you know, even though I was the vocalist, I rarely wrote a word. Yeah. Um, you know, I think my first band, I wrote one or two songs. And even those, you know, it was really hard to kind of put yourself out there because I was this, you know, scared um, and sort of, you know, um, sort of like wounded kid. Yeah. And so I didn't have the confidence. So I think over time that came and it was the same thing in business. When I first got in business and started working in, you know, working on my career, you know, there were aspects where I was not afraid to deviate from the norm. Um, because especially, you know, when I, when I entered the business, you know, entered business seriously, like when it was like a focus of how to develop my career and, and career development, it was at a time where you had, you know, kind of the dot-com implosion. So this is mm -hmm. very, very early 2000. 
And, you know, I had just been moved out from New York to the Bay Area um, to run my first, my first location, my first store. And at the time, all the locations in, in the Bay Area were some of the most, um, the highest revenue and highest profit businesses in, in the entire organization. And that's because they had all the dot-coms that were kind of printing money. And in turn, they were handing around and just giving you business. And when I, when I ended up moving out to the Bay Area, it was in um, February of 2001. And, you know, all of a sudden, next thing you know, you had, you know, you had September 11th, but then you had the dot-com implosion. So all of a sudden you had businesses around me that were doing, you know, five, six hundred, seven hundred thousand dollars a month in revenue, all of a sudden doing 150000 And the reason I bring that up is that when I first got there, I think the biggest thing I realized was here I was, I was surrounded by all these other locations that did the same exact thing I did. Right. And the idea was, well, you know, how do I go from being this very small location that was doing, you know, a quarter, if not a fifth of the revenue, these other locations, how do I, how do I differentiate myself? Mm. And that was where I, I kind of took some of the things that I learned from being a musician to say, okay, let me like really start to try to think about and anticipate, you know, of course, everybody uses like customer feedback and you get a lot of great information from that, but that's typically pretty reactive. Um, what I really tried to do is figure out how do I get customer feedback to figure out what's maybe not so smooth or not so great about how we're interacting right now. But most importantly, how do I understand ultimately what they would love to get from a company? Like, what do they need from from a print company? Like, really? Yeah, yeah. Like, what yeah. is the base of it? And try to anticipate without them telling me, like, what were the pain points? What are the things that make it difficult to do business with me uh, or with the company I was with? And how do I simplify that? Yeah. And so I remember when I first got to the Bay Area, again, it was before the dot-com implosion, um, I kind of walked in with all these different ideas of different things I wanted to do. And at first, everybody kind of looked at me, including like, I remember the R I do my first intro call with the RVP of the West, and I walked him through some of the things that I was working on. He was just like, I, I, he didn't get it. But he was like, look, like, you know, this is your shot. Like, you get basically this amount of time to really prove yourself. And so if you want to go do these things, go ahead. And it, it just really worked out in that all of a sudden, you know, September 11th comes, the, the dot-com implosion comes, and my business was kind of going like this, and everybody else is just shot down. And a lot of that was because, again, I, I, I was like, I, I, don't, I can't try to compete with these other locations and other businesses. I need to do, do something different than what they're doing so that way people give us a shot. And there I can compete. You know, I can't make up for the past, but I can I can certainly forge the future. And, and I think that was a big, a big thing for me early on was to have that confidence that, you know, something like print, whenever you're selling a commodity, let's say, you know, the differentiation is not not big from from location to location, with the exception of service and, you know, your your um, relationship and how you develop a relationship and realizing that sometimes, especially in business, the best relationships are ones where you might say at a certain time, look, you can, you can do X, it's going to cost you this, but based on what you're asking to do and based on what your needs are and based on you know, all these different attributes of what we've just talked about, I'd actually recommend you do this. And it's cheaper and it's more economical, but it's probably the right thing for now. And, and my whole idea was, how do I build a relationship where they come to me every time for their needs? Forget about just winning the one big project or getting the one big contract. How do I develop a relationship 
where there's a loyalty and a relation, you know, and, and, and it, you're, not, you're not competing on price. You're not competing on a technology that everybody else has. You're competing on your, your ability to, to have a relationship and sometimes, you know, manufacture wins for your customers or, you know, get, have them think differently about a project that might cost you revenue in the short term, but, but gives you a win in the long term. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and I feel this is a great time to get into your background here because you developed this approach and you have these, these ways of looking at business situations that are really based on how you grew up, who you are as a person. So let's talk about growing up. So tell us a bit about how you came up, where you came up, and just whatever you want to share from being a kid up until becoming a business person and how that's really helped feed into this idea of deviating from the norm to get to more successful spaces. Yeah, so I grew up in, uh, in, in Edison, New Jersey. Um, you know, grew up with my mom and my dad and, you know, um, they were incredibly supportive of me, but we were definitely made from very different molds. You know, my mother was a butcher. My father ran fish departments. I'm like the vegan, right? Like, it's just everything about us. Like, we were, you know, like, I felt love from them. I felt support from them, but not necessarily a, a, an intuitive connection. Mm-hmm. And um, I definitely grew up pretty troubled. I mean, I was, I was getting in a lot of trouble at a, at a very young age. I went, uh, I remember my, my first big one was, you know, I had to go to a scared straight program in fifth grade at Rawway State Prison. Um, in New Jersey. And I remember um, no one looked like me when I went there. Uh, no one was my age. And I just remember everybody looking at me and you could tell they were just trying to figure out like, what the hell is this kid doing here? <laughs> and so I just, I grew up, you know, I just, I really struggled to find my place in the world to, to figure out who I was. And there was, there were a lot of traumatic events that happened in, in my earlier years that, that really made everything very difficult for me in terms of like trying to find my place in the world. And, you know, music luckily kind of saved me because, you know, punk music, you know, almost everybody came from some pretty, pretty, you know, traumatic background, not everybody, but I'd say a good portion, especially, you know, if you think about like the, the, the early mid eighties, uh, you know, most of the kids, you know, came from these, you know, kind of screwed up relationships or screwed up family lives. And, you know, that helped me kind of find a, find a connection, uh, early on. But anyway, as, you know, again, kind of, as I started to go through, you know, kind of growing up and figuring out who I was as a person, um, you know, a few things popped up. I think, you know, the first thing was that, you know, I found, you know, I found, I I didn't love being in a band in that I, I wanted to do interviews and I wanted to be on the cover of like a fanzine, stuff like that. I liked the, the, the 45 minutes on stage. Yeah. I liked the, the, the release of, of all this turmoil um, and the ability to kind of therapeutically release it in, in a setting that, you know, I felt, I felt like I was surrounded by people who had similar, you know, similar, maybe different situations, but similar feelings, right? This disconnect from everything. And I found that, you know, being able to, to be creative and think about, you know, again, ways to, to, to take something that, that has given something important to me, um, and find ways to be able to share that with other people, um, was just, it became important to me. And I, I realized how much I love the creative process. And so when I, when I got into business, that really kind of carried over again, like you have, 
you know, I, I joined, I, you know, my first real job, and I mean real, real job, was with a company called Kinko's. And, you know, they, the entire business model, you know, was kind of started on a whim. And, you know, it was all about figuring out, you know, how do you, you have this whole, you know, you had students, and how do you, you know, find a way to, to make their college experience easier, give them, you know, access to technology and, and things like that, you know, course books, all these different things, you know, at a price that they could afford. Um, it was it was very much, you know, this this kind of scrappy endeavor. And by the time I joined the organization, you know, it, it had evolved quite a bit. But I had sort of this, you know, I, I love that story. And I love the ability to say, like, look, here's this this program. Here's this, you know, here's this company that, that people know and that people need. But, you know, technology is changing. Everything in the world is changing. How do you figure out what the next thing is? And and how do you, you know, provide that to your customers before anybody else does? And again, it goes back to kind of that relationship. And that that really is what that's what I love about business today. I love the idea that you can follow the path in front of you. You know, right now I run a company that that manages and runs franchise locations. And when you're in a franchise business, the whole idea is that you've bought into a business where they kind of give you the blueprint and you go and execute on it. But there's still a fair amount and, and quite a bit of, you know, of, of freedom to, to take the model and find different ways to, again, identify potential gaps or pain points from a consumer standpoint or an employee standpoint and improve upon it. Yeah. And that's the part that I love about my job. I love, you know, the ability to go, okay, this is, you know, again, a company that's successful, you know, with services that people really enjoy and it's a workplace that people really like, but there's still pain points. There's still things that, that kind of like are like they're rocking the shoe. And how do we, how do we address that? How do we remove those rocks? How do we take what is a successful concept and make it even better? Yeah. And I think that's, that's what drives me. Well, and you know, I, I, I love all that. And I want to, I want to back up a little bit because I, I want to pinpoint something. So it seems even like when you found that punk scene that you were just a different cat within that punk scene as well. And like, what I mean by that is like, you started in a band like release and correct me if I'm wrong. Release was the first yeah. band you were in, right? Correct. So you started in re release, which was kind of like, and I, I don't mean this in a negative way because I, I love I love release and I like I like paint by the numbers hardcore, but it was kind of like of the time, very paint by the numbers kind of hardcore. Yeah, I was. I, I, I can't listen to it, so you're you're better at it than I am. I, okay. I can't even touch it. But so we've got that, and then next is resurrection, right? Correct. And you seemed from not necessarily starting with resurrection, but maybe that was that kind of space resurrection where you became seemed to come quite critical of the scene that you were within. Like you were within scene, but you were also kind of critical of being within that scene. And you wanted to differentiate yourself from being within that scene. You didn't want to just be a guy that like kind of repeatedly did the same kind of band known for the same thing. You didn't want to just go down the river with everyone else and be like, yeah, we're punks. You seem to have like a level of cultural critique and so that you were already sort of deviating from the norms starting from resurrection on. I want to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, again, going back to release, I think maybe I wrote two songs for the band. I didn't really write much because I, I just I, I didn't know how to. I mean, I, I think the only reason I was a singer of the band is because of I was so outlandish. Yeah. And the other guys just found it, you know, entertaining. I, I, I don't know how else to put it. Um, but Resurrections were where I really started to kind of figure out 
what I needed um, to to find you know some comfort and you know some some release from the things that I was I was dealing with and you know I'd say that 108 and, and resurrection both I think a lot of times people would would read those song lyrics or look at it and go oh you know they're they're preaching to the the crowd they're talking to the audience and the reality is most of the time it was actually critiquing myself mm-hmm. it was me trying to battle the things you know and and articulate articulate what I what I expected for myself and wanted for myself but I knew that I wasn't delivering on and I remember like for me that was what was really powerful was that it was it was let you know i mean yes there were certain aspects of it i think where i was you know pointing the finger but most of the time it was it was a critique of of me and my peers and mm-hmm. you know the fact that you know i mean for example you know growing up in the shridge scene you know that idea that like oh like i've done something really special because i i don't drink it or i don't smoke <laughs> and the reality was it was kind of bullshit i mean i i, I didn't totally. deal with peer pressure in that way at mm-hmm. least like it wasn't a big thing for me it was more the fact that I, I kind of knew like, hey, if I if I were to do these things with where I am right now as a person, mm-hmm. like it is not going to go well. Yeah. If I'm going to Rawway State Prison for a scared straight program in fifth grade, imagine then adding in, you know, drugs or alcohol or things like that. It, it just it, so it, a lot of times the lyrics, while they, they I think, you know, definitely you can read it and go, yeah, you're, you're talking to them. It was a lot of times more about myself and challenging how I thought and how I felt and, and how I conducted myself. All right. Cause I, I really feel this is important for our audience to hear, you know, like, and again, I'm, I'm speaking from part speculation and part, part an informed opinion. Um, and for anyone listening, who's not familiar with Rob's musical background, the reason I'm focusing on this is I believe it's a really important part of deviating from the norm and being in that space is like, you know, Coming up, some people just are like, yeah, I'm going to deviate from the norm. I've got this bigger idea, like, you know, say, like an Elon Musk or whatever. Other people, they got to find themselves and they got to, they know that's the core of who they are. They're just kind of a different person and they have to ease into that or figure that out over time. And Rob, you're, as you said earlier, you're just someone who's gotten, you had to kind of like figure that out about yourself and how to do that. And the musical part is, I think, important because I want to hit on this a little further. Sure. So as you, you know, you want resurrection, 108. Um, and you know, 108, I, I mean, I still think it's one of the most classic hardcore bands. Uh, but an interesting thing is then you hit Judas Factor. And Judas Factor was like really going off of the map of, of anything you've done. And it was interesting because it kind of took some of the stuff that was going on with Gravity Records and brought it more into kind of a mainstream kind of hardcore space. And you were mm. playing with musicians that like had all kind of come from more of a traditionally hardcore space, but were now doing stuff that was clearly hardcore, but was pulling from different styles. And it was at that time where uh, like, you know, I think uh, Ballads in Blue China, that first LP is like a, a unsung classic of hardcore. It's an incredible, incredible record. I thought the EP was okay, but that LP mm. is, yeah. is fantastic. Um, what struck me and and I thought about a lot is that you just seemed like a, a person who was searching all the time and that you were within a scene where you were ser- like the scene was kind of like a, a vehicle that helped you search, but almost like you were coming to the end of what you could find out about yourself within that scene. Yeah. I mean, I, I'll say that, you know, if I have to think about like all the records that I've made, that that was the Ballads of Blue China was absolutely probably the most important to me. 
mm-hmm. in that leading up to that, I mean, again, like I was even with 108, I mean, 108 was especially like at that time, like those songs, when I sang them, I was not thinking about the people in the audience. I was always thinking about myself mm-hmm. and the things I struggled with. And, you know, in the background, I, I was completely falling apart through 108. Like it just, it got progressively worse. And, and, I, and I don't say this lightly, but I never expected to, to reach the age of 30. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I struggled heavily with depression and, and all these anxieties and things. And it just kept getting worse and worse. And, and you know, I think a lot of times when you lose everything, mm-hmm. um, that allows you, you know, it's, it's hard, but it allows you to kind of rebuild. And, and that really was that era of my life. It was like, I mean, again, I was still pretty much a hot mess. But at that point, I could admit I was a hot mess. And yeah. I, was, I was no longer afraid to say and talk about the things early in life that that kind of complicated my entire worldview and 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 everything mm-hmm. and so it was interesting because that record i mean put it this way i don't know that i could ever play those songs again emotionally mm. because it was really you know I, I bared everything i had on that that record and you know I, i'd say it still was another six or seven years until i really kind of started to turn my life around. And I don't mean professionally. At that time in the Judas Factor, I was actually just, I'd started working at Kinko's. So things kind of took off from there, but it was still a, a good amount of years as I kind of really started to, to, to deal specifically with the traumas and the things that had happened to me early in life and, and how that had, you know, then impacted, you know, my entire world and universe, mm-hmm. you know, from, from my friends to my family to, the things I believed in, you know, or, you know, and I, and I say believed in with quotations because, you know, at that point it was, it was more about surviving than believing in things. And so like, even like religious sentiment for me, it was never a literal religious belief. In other words, I'd ever read the Bhagavad Gita and went, yes, this is exactly what happened this many years ago. At, it wasn't about that. It was, it was, you know, again, like, to give you an example, it was me trying to figure out, you know, I had, a, I had parents who I said, like I said, I, maybe I didn't connect with on a deep level, but I knew they loved me. Mm-hmm. Yet I had experienced all these very traumatic things and I couldn't, like, how do, you, how do you explain that to a kid? Like, my parents didn't understand it. I didn't understand it. And so, you know, when I started looking at, like, things like Eastern religion and the ideas of karma, it just gave me something to like shield me and go, okay, that's why I was a really bad person in my prior life. And this is why these things happened to me. Mm-hmm. And it allowed me to survive. And I, and I, and I don't say that lightly. Like the reality is if I didn't go and get into those things for a period of time, I would not be here today. Um, and, but it was around that period where really I started to go, do I really believe in this stuff or is it really just more of a, like, I needed it to protect myself? And, and, and it's funny, even back then, I, I, uh, someone sent me a snippet of an interview I had done in 108 where someone was challenging me saying, oh, you know, you know, what if there's no God? And I was like, I, this isn't about God to me. Like, if there's no God, like, that's fine. Like, this is really about me trying to find how to be a better person, how to treat the people around me better, how to, how to treat myself better. And, you know, I, I, for me, it was never about all those other things. 
And so anyway, it was around that time where just, you know, I, I really picked apart my entire life and it probably took until another, like I said, five or six years until I got to a point where it was like, okay, now everything's heading in the right direction because I, you know, I dealt with all those really, really painful things. Not to say that they're not still painful today and still not a rock on my shoe today because they always will be, but to a very different extent. Yeah. And so I, I, I want to continue on this just a little bit and then hop into the, the business world because this for yeah. me is such an interesting part about like deviating from the norm. Because again, like I just think you were just a different cat, like growing up in the punk scene, of course, we're, we're surrounded by people who had traumas or difficulties. You'd had like some significant stuff and we certainly don't need to get into it here. But I did appreciate on the, uh, during the Judas Factor era, you talked about that stuff in interviews because I think it was very empowering for other people to see someone who had been like an important person in our scene, a creative person in our scene, to talk openly about those things. So it was like really powerful, great to see. So you and I crossed paths uh, for the first time when you're playing in the Judas Factor. And I remember walking away from our interaction thinking, that is a profoundly unhappy person who, oh. wants, to, who wants to be better and is figuring it out. And so I was, I was still young. I was a very eager, young, hardcore kid that like totally like, I had never, I grew up in, in, uh, in Alberta, so I hadn't met a lot of people that I had looked up to in that point. And I remember our interaction, I was like, whoa, that is not a happy person. Like I had a really, I left feeling two things. I don't want to interact with that person again. And I don't think that guy's a bad guy. I think he's an unhappy guy who's, who's searching. And it was really clear in the Jews Factor lyrics that you were like searching. And then in the punk world, you know, like you did a few more things, but you kind of, not disappeared, but you clearly took your focus somewhere else. And that's where I'm real interested in is this period where you do the Judas Factor, you do, uh, again, this, like, I believe, uh, unsung classic, Ballads in Blue China, great record. Anyone who's into any form of, like, aggressive or emotive music, Revelation Records, check it out. It's just a masterpiece, I think. So you hit a point where the band kind of runs out of steam. And maybe the vehicle that you've been, you've been using to kind of figure yourself out doesn't have any more gas in it then what happens yeah i mean it was it was actually a little it wasn't necessarily that i i didn't have gas to do music it's that i realized i mean one your, your perception of me at that time is spot on again like i think it's like a lot of things when you when you have that breakthrough and you really start to deal with traumatic trauma in your life typically the worst of you kind of comes out um, because it's, it's, it's a survival instinct at that point. You're just trying to figure out, and I'm, uh, again, not trying to be dramatic. Like at that point, especially I wasn't sure I was going to make it to the next day. And it was like that every single day. And, you know, I was, I was a father at the time I had, you know, my first child, I think on that tour was, was 10 months old. And I realized when I got back, like one, you know, I hated the touring part. I, I just, because I was so unhappy and I just, I, I, I didn't know what to do. Like, I liked the 45 minutes of playing, but the other 23 hours and 15 minutes, I was left to, to my own devices. And that wasn't like a good thing. So I, I think when I got back from that tour, um, you know, I just realized like, look, I've got to, I've got to figure out like how to support my family long term. Yeah. You know, like working, you know, working 40 hours a week and playing shows on the weekend and doing these tours. Like, it's, it's not, I got to fix myself. I got to, I got to figure out how to support my family and I got to figure out how to be present to some degree with my family. 
And so I stepped away for those years to do just that. It was it was dealing with a lot of the emotional stuff I was going through. And, and, and again, trying to like, I literally had to take inventory and I had to do it in like these very small segments, but inventory of every aspect of my life, to every relationship I had, to the things that I did, to what I was going to do for a career, like all of that, I had to like spend time to figure out like, what is this and, and why am I doing it? And is it helping me be a better person, a happier person? And, and what is that going to mean 10 years from now? So that was really kind of the focus uh, for me was, you know, it was it was figuring out, you know, of all the things that I had, I had defined and built in my life, what was really there because I it was good for me and I wanted it. Um, and it was going to help me grow as a person and what was there because, you know, it's just things I accumulated during the time. So I think that was kind of the, the biggest piece, but it was also, that's where I started to go, okay, well now I got to focus on my career. And I realized while it's not the same as writing a record, um, you can be creative and you can do things differently. And that's really where, again, like I went, I remember when I took the job, they moved me, they relocated me from New York city to um, Concord, California, which is right outside of Oakland. And at the time, they had Man, offered this me... Was Kink, this was Kinko's. Kinko's, right? yeah. I'd been offered yeah, a few yeah. positions. One in New York City, two in New York City, one in Jacksonville, and then this one in, in California. And I decided California because I knew that I needed to get away from the surroundings that were always reminding me of, of the prior 20 plus years of trauma, right. right? And I felt like making that clean break was important. And my best friend... To this day, Norm uh, from Texas's reason, he had just moved out to Oakland. So it was like, here's a way for me to get a fresh start. And what happened was like, I, I went in and, you know, I'd worked for Kinko's at that point for, I think, two years. And I really kind of figured out if I ever ran a business, here's, if I ever ran a Kinko's, here's what I would do and here's how I'd do it differently. And I really had this idea. And Essentially, they flew me out to California, relocated my family out there. My third day there, my district manager visits and breaks the news that, hey, this location has been open now for nine years. Uh, we got to make a decision on the lease in about nine months. Um, this location has never been profitable. Uh, so we think we're going to close it. But don't worry, Robert, we'll have a position for you somewhere. And <laughs> that was my third day. Um, on my fourth day, I had come down with food poisoning salmonella poisoning because i was in a hotel and i think i took my my wife and my kid at the time to to denny's and we got like a boca burger or whatever it was at the time and of course it had salmonella and so i got really really sick but, but right before that i had i had made it a point where i went through all of the prior commercial accounts that had run through my location and i made a personal phone call to every single one of them and introduced myself and said look i know that service levels in the past quality in the past, all those things have been poor. They have had manager after manager, turnover, like turnover is really high. If you give me an opportunity, I promise you, like I will deliver for you in terms of relationship, quality, pricing, everything, right? Just give me the shot. And so it was funny. It was, it was, a, it was a Friday morning where they, they released me from the hospital with salmonella poisoning. Um, I was throwing up the entire day and around Friday at 11 o'clock at night, I get a phone, I get a call on my cell and it was one of those customers and she had worked for a large educational publisher in the Bay area. And when I talked to her, she said, look, it was so bad that we, we had ended up opening our own print facility. We have our own little facility. We do all our own stuff, 
but if I ever need anything, I'll give you a call. So she calls me 11 o'clock. She's like, all right, Robert, you called me. I don't know if you remember me. Here's my name, blah, blah, blah. You made a lot of promises. You said a lot of stuff. And she's like, and now it's your chance to deliver. And essentially what had happened was a person was intoxicated driving a car, uh, hit a telephone pole in front of their facility, which went right through their facility. And on that coming Tuesday, it was it would kick off on Monday night, but Tuesday was this huge educational seminar conference going on in San Francisco. So she said, we need you to print all this stuff. And again, like I looked at it and was like, okay, she went, we went through it. And again, I'm like really, really sick. I'm on my kitchen table, but she's going through everything. And again, like I just, I kind of said, look, based on all these things, here's my recommendations. Here's what we can do. And anyway, she said, all right, it's yours. It's yours to try. And we had two small copiers. Like we didn't have the firepower everybody else had because we were a crappy location and didn't do anything. I called my team between myself and them. Like we managed to be in that location running copiers 24 hours a day until the conference came along. We delivered the project. In that first month, we had broken the, the sales record for that store that it had for the first 10 years. It was the first profitable month the store ever had, and we broke the, we broke the sales record for 10 years. Every month after that, we broke the sales and profit records. And again, it wasn't, I didn't have better machines than anybody else. I didn't have better technology. I, I didn't have anything aside from like, look, we're going to take care of you. And I remember one of the things that, that hit me right away was that, you know, the, the next couple of weeks, whenever I go in my office for a period of time, it would take two minutes for it to be a knock on the door. And Poi would come and say, Robert, there's this really upset customer. They're really angry. You got to go talk to them. And I'd always go out and talk to them. And, and the first thing that hit me was, you guys don't know what really angry customers are coming from New York City. Like, yeah. these people are really, really nice. Um, but the second thing was, it was always like this really simple stuff, right? It was like, uh, I don't like the color on this. Uh, you know, they're, you know it, it seems slightly skewed. All these like stupid things. And so all of a sudden it kind of hit me and, and the next day a team member came in, hey, Robert's customer's really upset, wants to talk to you. I said, great, what's the issue? They, they told me. I'd say, okay, well, what do you, if you were the customer in this situation, what would you want us to do? And they'd give me an answer. I'd say, great, what you're going to do is you're going to go out there and let them know that I am on a phone call, but I will be out there in two minutes. And in the next two minutes, you're going to explain to them, you're going to be empathetic to them, you're going to apologize, and you're going to give them a recommendation of what you can do to solve the problem but I'll be out in two minutes. And I waited. It was probably more like three minutes, but I, I come out. I see the employee staying there. I don't see a customer. I said, hey, what, what, where's the customer? Well, Robert, I, I gave him, you know, I, I told him this is what we could do for him. They were really happy. They're coming back, you know, in an hour to pick up the project. And what I realized was that, again, my employees knew the right thing to do. It was just saying to them, if you were the customer, if you forget about policy, forget about all this stuff. Right. If you were the customer and this is the issue you have with your project, what would you want the answer to be? And you don't need to ask my permission to make a decision for a customer. Make the decision. And afterwards, let me know what the issue was, what the decision was. And if it was the wrong decision or one that I thought was wrong, you're not going to get in trouble for that. Yeah. I'm going to let you know next time I prefer you do this than that. But you're never going to get in trouble for taking care of your customer. Yeah. And that was really kind of our motto. And that was why every month we just kept all of a sudden our transactions, they, they weren't necessarily growing like 
in terms of count, but the average dollar value of the transactions we're building. And that's because instead of having a customer come up and taking their order, consult with them. Who are they? What are they going to use this project for? Who is the audience? And based on that, tell them, here's what I would recommend. And nine times out of 10, they're going to, they're going to go with you on that. And so that to me goes back to that idea of like thinking differently a lot of times isn't as complicated as we make it. And, and it's still to this day, I, I say to my, you know, my managers, if you were in this situation, if you were this customer, what would you want? Mm-hmm. And take care of it. Treat it like it's your own business. Yeah, you have the ability I, to make decisions. I got to hit on something that's really interesting. It's you had to like actually take the step of giving people permission to think like that. Like, hey, you're never going to get in trouble for like putting yourself in that space and taking care of the, of the customer. You're never going to get in trouble for that. But it's like odd. I wouldn't say odd, but it's, it, it's important to note that for people who don't necessarily have a comfort zone with being in a, in a different thinking, whether that a different thinking is really radical or, or very what you and I would consider practical, is sometimes as a leader, you just need to like overtly give people permission because they're not going to do it otherwise. They wouldn't even dare to think that they'd do that. And that's because maybe they've had really crappy leaders, really bad work experience, really bad mentors, or people who, um, you know, tough experiences growing up, whatever it is, where people enter into the work world just really confined. And they think they're supposed to be this little thing. And that's why deviating from the norm is so important. So hitting on this though, again, you know, I, I lost track of you for a couple of years, but then started noticing you, you know, you, you reemerged in music after a while and you were doing stuff, but you were doing stuff in a different way, in a, in a really specifically different way. And I remember thinking again, like, I think that guy is happy. Like, I think he's a happier person. He seems just to be like, he seems to be, um, in a different space in his life. And I, and you're of course working with death wish and working with uh, my best friend, Trey. And I remember talking to Trey and being like, yeah, what, what's Rob Fish like these days? And, and, you know, he just gave you such a powerful endorsement. Like, yeah, you should really reconnect with the guy. He's a, he's a great guy, you know, da, da, da. And then you and I ended up reconnecting. And over time we've been kind of in and out of touch, but I've been watching your career and I'm just so inspired by it, man. Cause there's this power of like accepting that you're a different person and no longer trying to like manage that but allowing just accept that you're a different person and that deviating from the norm is actually this incredibly valuable thing as long as you put yourself behind the driver's seat of it and it feels like you got behind the driver's seat in your career and and just who you are as a person and said yeah i'm different and that's actually a benefit to myself and everyone else yeah, I mean, I, I will tell you, there was definitely a, a chip on my shoulder for a long time because, you know, whether it was at Kinko's or then when I went to Massage Envy, the franchisor, I was surrounded by people who had spent their entire careers in retail, had, you know, college degrees, like they had a pedigree. Mm. And I think, you know, I, I kind of liken it to how I think about sports. Like Michael Jordan had incredible innate talent. Mm. You know, if he had never barely practiced, you know, once he, he started to hit his, his peak, he still would have been better than the vast majority of people around him. But what made him great was his entire, his, his thirst to always get better. And that's what I used to, that really is what kind of hit me is that, you know, again, like when you're, when you're developing a team, first you have to give yourself permission to, to think differently and, and act outside the norm. You have to be okay with making mistakes 
because as many programs as I came up with that, that really helped kind of drive um, success in business, I've had ones that didn't work out well. And, but the idea is that if you're going to fail, fail quickly and learn from it. And it, it kind of goes back to, again, that idea of like when you talk to customers, I always found that when people are trying to deal with customer service issues, they deal with, they, they're always trying to just deal with the situation as opposed to like, you got to deal with the situation, right? A ROM had a bad, bad experience. I've got to, I've got to figure out what went wrong and I got to correct it. But you also want to step back and look and go, what are all the bad experiences we have had? over the last month, 90 days, six months, year, what are the systemic things that we're doing wrong? So that example that I gave earlier, giving people permission, it was, hey, when you make that decision, what you're gonna do is I wanna copy the order form, I wanna copy of what it is that they didn't like, and then want a copy of what it was that they did like. Mm -hmm. And the idea was to really look at it afterwards and go, what is it that we're doing wrong? Like. You know, it's, of course, it can just be a slight miscommunication or machine needed to be calibrated. But usually it was it was a lot deeper than that. And if you didn't look at five or 10 different issues alongside one another, you never would figure out those systemic things. And so a lot of what I started to then really focus on is my job as a leader. There's a few things. One, I never will be the smartest person in the room and I never want to be. Because if I am, we're in trouble. Second is I want people who think, who talk, who articulate, and who process things differently than I. Because if I just surround myself with mini-me, that's really comfortable, but I don't know that I'm going to get pushed to think differently. And so that's the, the next thing. And then when you hire people, hire them for the potential that they have to bring to the organization, provide them with what I'll call guardrails in terms of like, hey, here's a base expectation. But the reality is I hired you because you're really, you're really smart and you're gonna bring something different and let them go and do it. You know, again, like with, with my direct reports, you know, my expectation is that I might say to them, hey, you know, my VP of ops, hey, I wanna put together a toolkit for our managers. Uh, you know, that, that address the, the most common areas of, of, of dips in revenues and ways in which they can attack those dips. We don't need to be over prescriptive. It doesn't need to be perfect, right? There could be five different ways that you can focus on in a membership model, for example. How do you, how do you re-engage your members? How do you get them to come back in? How do you get them to, to come in more often? There are a lot of different ways to do it. We don't need to figure out the perfect way. Let's find people who have been successful doing it have them walk us through, you know, what are the reports and things that they looked at to, to get it right. And let's put it together as a toolkit. And you could have five toolkits around re-engaging your members. Mm -hmm. How do you provide, you know, your job as a leader, my job, my, my team's job is to try to figure out what are the obstacles that make it difficult for our managers to be successful in their roles? Mm -hmm. What are the things that make it difficult for our, our massage therapists, our estheticians? And how do we remove those obstacles? And if I could just do that, like that's where my success is. My success is not that I'm really smart and that I have great ideas. My success is I surround myself with people who are smarter, who think differently, who are very collaborative and, and like to kind of debate back and forth, um, who aren't afraid of making a mistake as long as you make it quickly, and who, again, understand that their value is, is not in their resume, 
It's not, you know, in their education. Those things are all helpful, but their, their, their success is going to be built on removing obstacles for others. Okay. So I'm going to add one more thing because I agree to yeah. all that. Like those are truly, truly like strong, incredible points of your leadership. There's one other piece though, is I believe that you are, have a real ability, just like a natural ability that you've honed over time to let people be who they really are. And if we think about society and we think about the business world, there's this like big push pressures the society to be within group, to be like, quote unquote, normal, be that person. And like, cause you want to fit in and you could be in the punk scene. You could be in like you sure. prep school, whatever it is, fit in, fit in, fit in, fit in. And you know, we get an early career in business. It's like, don't make mistakes. Don't look bad. Like kiss ass, like do all these things. And we realize it's like, if you're a person who perfectly fits in, you perfectly fit in with business. Yeah. You know, like, you probably have a fine ride, but that ride isn't necessarily going to be super valuable to you or, or other people. It's when you have that ability to just really be yourself and kind of figure yourself out and make mistakes and fall on your face and have people around you and mentors around you help you get back up and figure it out. That's where you can like really grow as a human being. You can help other people grow and you can help business grow so that like just being who you are, being like a flawed, wonderful, beautiful, terrible, sometimes human being and, and being around people who allow you to do that and figure that out, that is a huge blessing. And I believe you as a leader, you've, you've really like mastered that. So anything you want to say on that before I go to my next question? I, 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 would, I would love to say that I've mastered it. I, I absolutely have not, but mm -hmm. I continually come back to it. I, there, there's a quote that I always really liked. Um, it says we cannot solve our problems with the same thinking we use to create them. Right. And that to me is kind of that idea of like, again, like we have education, you know, look, we've got experiences, we've got education and they give us really good context, but don't fall into the first answer is typically not the right answer. Right. The first answer is typically the easy answer. The first answer is typically what deflects blame from you as a leader, you as an organization. And, Look, if, if what we want is to just feel like everything we do is, is perfect and we're working on water, that's great. I, my interest is how do we continually get better? Um, how do we grow the company? How do we make more people successful? You know, how do we take, I mean, again, when I first started at Kinko's, um, there was this entrepreneurial side to it that really, like, really drove me and, 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 and excited me. And again, like I was successful because I had this great organization behind me who could tell me all the things that have worked and not worked in the past. But at the same time, let me slightly tweak something that maybe didn't work in the past and see if I can get it to work. And it worked for me and it, it didn't just work in terms of the financials, but it built my confidence yeah. and it built my ability to, you know, to be a better leader, be a better person. And so it's as much about that. Like I love looking at and watching, you know, former employees or, or peers that go on to do these incredible things. Yeah. Like, you know, would I love all the people, like if, if I could pick, you know, the, the 10 people who have, I've worked with in the past that I would love to have work with me again, um, I, I, could, I could write that list. But there's something special about when they go on and they, they kind of leave the nest and then they do something truly special. Like that's really, really inspiring to me. Yeah. And, and yeah. Sorry, go on. No, no, I, I, I love that. Yeah, man. And, but the thing is like, if you hadn't spent so much time kind of figuring out 
how to really embrace who you are, that you are just this different cat, but that, that, that's not a bad thing. And like, we kind of rewrite the programming of society where it's like, Hey, you're a different kind of person. Well, that's terrible. You got to hide that instead embracing it and figuring out how to, how to use that of value to other people. Like, man, I, I think it's just such a gift that you can give yourself and other people, but it also helps me focus on where, and whereas we're heading towards the end of our conversation, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't discuss this. You're also not a guy that's just like, oh yeah, I got to figure it out. And, you know, I'll, I'll learn some lessons from the business world. You actually are really engaged in developing yourself. And, you know, you fairly recently completed a master's in industrial organizational psychology. And it's a pretty interesting thing because you talked a lot about growing up and having like, just feeling like, you know, you had a lot of stuff to deal with. It was prohibitive of you doing school early on, but you went back later in life and went and got a master's. Tell us about that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, I had, um, you know, I had at the time been with uh, Massage Emmy, the franchisor for three years or something like that. And I was I was the VP of national operations for them. And I was approached by a company for a CEO position. And I remember when I was like, OK, like, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll go through the process. I didn't think anything of it. Like I had never envisioned myself, you know, being looked at seriously in that role. And interview after interview, it was like, yeah, you, you made it to the next round. You made it to the next round. So, you know, all of a sudden, I get flown out to Europe where the, the parent company was. And then I get sent out to, to Colorado to go through a day of basically psychometric testing and evaluations. And it was really, really intense. And I remember at the very end of it, um, you know, they have you do this test and the person walks out of the room and they come back in. And he, was, he said, look, we, we don't look at your resume or any of this information until this point. Because we want to make sure that we're, you know, that, that, that we're looking at you and all other candidates under the same light. He's like, but, you know, I just spent a few minutes looking at your resume. And he's like, I got to say, I am like shocked that you're in this interview. And he's like, look, you scored really, really well across the board. All the testing we did, like you fit the exact profile we'd look for, for this type of role. He's like, what shocks me, though, is that you, did you ever go to school? I was like, well, I kind of got through high school. <laughs> I graduated high school. He's like, look, like European firms, especially they're notorious. They're, they typically won't even talk to you unless you've got a master's. Like that's like the entry point to, to even get in the conversation. He's like going through this process with you. I can absolutely see why you're here. He's like, but I just want to say to you, whether you get this role or not, man, go get that piece of paper. Because for a lot of people, it'll sound, it sounds stupid, but for a lot of people, like, you just don't get, you don't get a shot. And don't not get the shot because you don't have a piece of paper. And uh, I came home. I, I flew home that night um, or the next day, talked to my wife about it and my, one of my business partners, a good friend of mine, Tim. And they're both like, yeah, you need to go to school. So I, I enrolled the next day. Um, and look, I, I think the one thing that, that I do have going for me is my work ethic. Um, I don't sleep a lot and I can work ungodly amount of hours. And so I, I went into it full bore. I mean, I, I, I finished my bachelor's in about a year, which, you know, look, it's business administration. And to be honest, you know, most people that are going for a business administration degree, they're 20, 22 year old kids. They haven't worked in the business world. Like, so every paper I wrote, everything I had to do, like it's stuff that I had done for 20 years. Yeah. So I got through it really quick. And then what really interests me is, again, I, I love psychology. I love trying to figure out, like, again, like, why do you love one brand and not the other, right? Simon Sinek, like that, the, you know, his, his famous talk, like, I, I, I probably listen to that once a quarter 
just to remind myself again that it's not about you you know again he uses the example of apple versus dell right apple didn't have you know a a monopoly on talent on technology they were all working from the same starting point but the way that they approached what they were going to do why they were going to do it how they were going to do it was the dramatic difference yeah and so that's that's always kind of resonated with me and so you know industrial organizational psychology the reason i went after that was like look when you're leading a larger organization I mean, I have, you know, about 1,800 employees and they are dramatically diverse in terms of, of ethnicity, you know, sexual orientation, age, um, political and social beliefs. I mean, it's all over the place. And I want to be able to, I, what I want my legacy to be is not that, you know, I, I you know, sure, I want to be like every business. I want to be able to develop it and and make it incredibly profitable and, and potentially sell it at a point. And, you know, you want those financial rewards and that's all great. But what really geeks me up and, and makes me excited is to see people that I've worked with go and be wildly successful. Mm -hmm. And so what really interested me about industrial organizational psychology is that idea that while you can't figure out how all 1800 people think in your organization, you can figure out the common likes, pain points, you know, without them even telling you, again, it's that idea of it's easy to take customer feedback that says, I don't like this. You just go and change it. But what can you figure out in everything else that they're telling you? How can you figure out other things that you can do that differentiate yourself and that make you a more valuable, you know, business partner or, or company to them? And, you know, that that really is what made me excited about, you know, getting my my master's there. And it was incredibly difficult. Um I mean, it was, you know, especially going through statistics and all that. I mean, it's, it's a crushing endeavor to do, but I'm really excited that I did it because again, I think it, it's, you know, that's the thing that excites me. I think, you know, I, I do think about what I want to do after business, right? Because I think eventually what I want to do is I, I would really love to try to work with, with kids and not necessarily young kids. It could be, you know, young adults, but that, that have similar backgrounds that have gone through what would be considered pretty traumatic experiences and, you know, have, have struggled and, and, and probably had some issues with the law, things like that. And how do you help them find themselves and build their confidence and, and, you know, take an idea and, and make it into something that they can invest themselves in? Because I think, again, going back to that whole period where I was really, I started to rapidly evolve and, and I don't want to say cure myself, but but fix some of the holes in my wall, if you will. Yeah. It was because I was, you know, it, I was getting some momentum and some success. And I was finding that, you know, look, I can't fit in with everybody else. Like I'm a dented can, right? You think about, yeah. I don't know if they have it in Canada, right? Where you go to the supermarket, you can buy the dented cans because they're going to be 50% off the price. The, right. the inside's the same. Like the, the ability for this thing to taste good, that hasn't changed because it fell, but it's a dented can. And, I don't need to look and talk like everybody else. Mm -hmm. um, I got to make sure that I represent myself professionally and, and ethically, but I don't need to be like everybody else. And all the companies that I, I've admired and look, looked up to, what made them special was they took something, they didn't necessarily create something out of thin air. Some people do, mm -hmm. but they, they took something that existed and, and they really tried to figure out what is, what is the thing that makes it 
this uncomfortable for consumers? What is it that makes this uncomfortable for employees? And how do I remove that discomfort? And I just really like enjoyed, you know, enjoyed thinking about the business that way. And, you know, getting my degree there really kind of helps me, you know, be able to have a more data-driven approach to understanding the psychology of a, of a larger organization. And what are the things that you, you know, because I think every business, when you make a decision, right, you've got these intended consequences up on your wall, right? We want to increase sales by this much. We want to drive EBITDA. We want to build efficiencies. But what you don't typically have written on the wall are what are the unintended consequences of the things that we're talking about? And that's really what I love is, is like, look, anytime I hear a politician or I'm on a sales pitch where all they do is say, hey, Robert, here's all the pros to what we're doing. There's no cons. I innately don't trust any of it totally. because every decision has a con, has a cost. It's a matter of what's the right, you know, does the pro outweigh the con? Yeah. All right. So as we're wrapping up here, man, I, I want to hit on like round up a little bit on what you just said there, because like. We can talk a lot about deviating from the norm and accepting who you are and letting yourself be that dented can, you know, like that's, that's cool. Like, cause there's so much value in that. And like what you can do for yourself, for others, for community, for a business, for the world is huge by just accepting, Hey, I, I'm, I'm actually, I'm different. I'm going to deviate from the norm and I'm going to do it the right way. But what we can add to that is it doesn't mean that there's, there's no value in like sharpening your sword. And I, oh, I want to be clear, like I'm a, I'm a very different kind of guy and I'm a different guy from the business world. I'm a different guy from your common therapist and I'm a different guy from your common punk. And that's worked for me and it's not worked for me. And one of the things as I've gotten older and gotten really much more comfortable with who I am and less insecure and just like, just more, more seated is like, Oh, I do have some gaps that I need to fill up. And I've been, I've been kind of getting over those gaps by just charisma or raw intelligence or a good way to speak with people. But there's actually some like educational components, some things that I need to learn from outside sources that are considered traditional that I need to learn so I can be the best version of who I am in business. So the thing I'd encourage anyone listening here, this isn't just about like radical self-acceptance or any of that. Yeah. Like there's a part of like seeing what your skill set is, become comfortable with yourself. But also like legitimately learning things from traditional sources so that you can actually be that best version of yourself. Yeah. I mean, there's no need to recreate a wheel that works perfectly fine. Yeah. You know, so, so I totally agree with you. I mean, I, again, I think for me, I, I, I learn something every time I, I, want, I want to sound too cliche, but I, when you really speak to people about what type of problems they're encountering and how they're trying to resolve them or hell, I'm having this, I'm really successful in this area. And I'm trying to figure out what was the ingredient that made this so successful. Like you learn a ton from that. And I don't think, you know, the whole idea of deviating from the norm, the goal is not to deviate from the norm, right? The goal is to figure out how to continually improve. And if that means deviating from a norm, great. Have the confidence to do that. I mean, again, like I, I say to my team all the time, like even for myself, I was, I was preparing something for our board and I was looking at performance where we're having some dips in certain areas with COVID, which is understandable. We do massage and body care, right? So COVID obviously impacts us pretty heavy, but there were some fluctuations in terms of, of impact of cost of services that were hitting us. Mm. And right away I was like, well, you know, I had this idea in my mind of here's what the issue is, right? It's that, you know, you don't have as many guests coming in. It's mostly members and 
they're coming in for just their monthly service, not necessarily their secondary services, and they're just using the services that they've already paid for. That's why we're seeing this. And it makes sense. Like everybody I said, like, hey, this is what I think it is. They're like, oh, that totally makes sense. But then I pulled the data. And what I saw was, it's true. What, what I said, what I hypothesized was true. But instead of it being a 10% change in be consumer behavior, it was 1%. Mm. So while what I said was true, it actually wasn't the cause of the issue that we're having or the, the challenge we were encountering. And it was just, it was a great reminder for myself to like, you never go and trust, you know, again, like something makes sense. Like we're all smart people. We have a lot of experience. We're going to hear something. And a lot of times we can quickly go, I think this is the issue, but spend the time to figure it out. Because if you guessed wrong, or even if you guessed right, but it's to, it's to a much lesser degree than you expected, you're not going to fix the issue. Yeah. So I, I totally agree with you. I think, you know, acting outside the norm, differentiating yourself, you don't do it just to do it. You do it when it makes sense. And totally, if man. it's going to improve the experience of your, your team members, your consumers, then yeah, do it. But don't just do it for the sake of doing it. Like I, again, I, I, I don't believe in fixing something that's not broken, yeah. but I believe in looking at ways. How do you enhance it? How do you improve it? How do you shine it? Yeah, um, totally, man. Yeah. All right. So last two questions. Uh, this one is a, a tough one. It's a soul searcher. What for you is the song from any New Jersey-based band that really encapsulates growing up in that scene for you? The one song. God. Um, I'm going to go with... Uh, I, I could probably give you a different song each day. Um, I'm going to go with In the Blink of an Eye by Vision. Woo! Like That's not Vision, what I thought you were going to say. That's awesome. Like Vision was really um, incredibly important to me for a few reasons. One, they were an incredible band. I mean, musician-wise, like I'm sorry, like Pete Tabbitt, Matt Riga, like everybody in that band could play their instruments. Yeah. Their songs were catchy as hell. They didn't sound like everybody else at the time. But the biggest thing was, look, when I met Dave Franklin... I was probably, and, and Division guys, I was 14 or 15. And to say that I was a loose cannon who was as awkward and screwed up, like it was unbelievable how just all over the place I was. Like I was just, it was rough. Yeah. But they just, they showed like this amount of love and encouragement. And I remember one day we went to um, a Vision practice, um, or it was a show, but it was really in, in Dave's, I don't know if it was his parents or his girlfriend's parents' basement, but they would do shows there and you'd go there. And I remember one time sitting there afterwards talking to Dave and it was me and uh, Chris Cap. And Chris Cap is, was the drummer for release. And I think I was, I mean, I was 15 when I was in release, 15 and 16. He was probably a year older, so probably 16. But I remember him going like, you know, you guys got to do a band. And I was like, well, we don't play instruments. He's like, just do it. And I remember like we just started doing it and like they would just get us on shows. And I remember like my first tour was supposed to be, you know, Vision release in 1989. Um, but like that band, like the way that like, how awesome they were was one thing, but also how how just encouraging they were. Like sending Ari, you know, who sings for Lifetime, like he was in a band called Enough and POS back then and how they encouraged them and just 
it was just a big deal because they were they were way smarter than us, or at least me, um, way more talented. Um, and I was annoying as hell, but they still like encouraged me. And, you know, over the years, I mean, you know, I, I feel like I, I wish just like everybody, like I wish I could have said some things to Dave um, about how important they were to me and, and, and how important his influence was to me. But today I'll say in the blink of the eye by vision, um, but I could pick, I mean, I could pick a ton of songs, um, yeah. Yeah. you know, second to, to vision for me in my head would have been, a, you know, I, again, I could pick a handful of lifetime songs because yeah. those were my peers, right? Those are the people like started in my garage, start, help me start resurrection. Like there's just an incredibly deep connection, but today I'll say in the blink of the eye, but in the blink of an eye by vision. Yeah. And rest in peace, Dave Franklin. Uh, thank you for everything yeah. that you did and, and the echoes that will never go away from, uh, from everything that you did. Um, okay, final question. Um, man, anything you want to wrap up? Anything you want to say to our audience as we're closing up? I think to you, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity. Again, I think you kind of referenced it earlier, and I think you probably said it a little nicer than it was, but like, giving me the chance to have a second, uh, first interaction. Uh, I thank you for that because I know my first one was not, uh, not the best. And I think most people in my life, um, probably had to discard the first few interactions with me to, uh, to still maintain a relationship with me. So thank you for that. You know, I, I, I think the biggest thing, and I think, you know, I'll tell you that COVID has definitely impacted me in a lot of ways. And, and one of the ways I think is, is gaining perspective. And I did a, I did a call with my team. Uh, we did an all employee call with, with all my team members about two weeks ago. And, um, you know, I just talked about how, for me, one of the things that really hit me during this was I've, I've seen a few friends pass away. Um, a few related to COVID, but you know, a few not related. And I've seen people who I admire are musicians that I like pass away, you know, Gail from, from power trips, a good example. You know, in that I thought that band was like amazing. I, I interacted with the guy once. I thought he was awesome. But anytime I've seen or heard him talk about something, I've always just been like, I love this guy and I love this band. Yeah. And when he passed away, it really hit me that, you know, one of the things that, that growing up like I did um, is, you know, you, you, you're, you're always trying to just survive to the next day. And you get to a point where everything's about, well, I'm going to get this job and I'm going to put away money. I'm going to do this because, you know, when I get 65 or I get to this age, then I'm going to be able to go and do the things that I really like love and want to do. And what's really hit me is that that's not how life works. And it's, it's made me kind of speed up and go, what's really important to me as a person? And how do I spend time each day reflecting on those things that are important? And how do I make them a priority? Because Ultimately, when I'm taking my last breath, you know, am I going to be reflecting on, you know, the, the 12th hour that I spent on, on, on December 3rd in the office working on this thing? Or am I going to reflect on, you know, my relationships and, you know, whether mm -hmm. it's with my wife or my kids or it could be my team members, too. But, you know, what's important to me? And it's made me kind of rethink about, you know, what does the future hold for me? And one thing I said to all my team members, I said, look, your job, you're, you're seen as your clients as healers. They come to you because they have physical discomfort or stress. And 
you are taking that stress and that hurt on your shoulders. And that's incredible. Like you're healers and, and I'm in awe of that. But what I, I'm going to ask you guys to do is each day, take 15 minutes to listen to your favorite song, to read a couple pages in a book, to, to eat a piece of cake, like whatever it is, like take a few minutes each day for yourself, um, you know, and, 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 and continue to evaluate, you know, your surroundings and, and, and everything that lays in front of you. And make sure that you, you make yourself a priority and your happiness and the happiness of your loved ones a priority. And yeah. I think that's probably the, the thing I'd say to people is whether it's in business or it's in art or it's in relationships, it's, you know, take care of yourself, take care of the people around you and don't put everything off for tomorrow because tomorrow just, it might not be there. Excellent. All right, Rob, uh, I deeply appreciate this conversation. Um, so for everyone, you know, check out release, even though Rob oh God, might say no, check out release resurrection 108, um, Judas factor, which is a personal favorite. And your current band is every scar has a story. Is that it? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Check all these things out. Also check out massage envy. Like, I mean, very, very cool business model. Love what you're doing. And thank you so much for the time. Everyone else. I will see you in the outro and Dave drop the beat. Hey, thanks so much, Robert. That was awesome. You know, it's really interesting to see someone develop in their career when you also kind of know them personally. And, you know, I met Rob when I was still fairly young, like really impressionable. And it was so interesting to see this guy that I had known simply through records that had impacted me, meet him, kind of have this like mixed reaction, but then also see him like develop and evolve into such an incredible person and professional. So, you know, Rob, thank you so much for sharing that. That was really cool. And, and I really got a lot of value out of it. So for anyone listening, deviating from the norm, that's a good thing. You know, you don't need to hide who you are, but you also can't just expect people to accept everything about you as it is. I think there's a really strong sense of finding the right workplace that values who you are while also willing to grow that person so that both the environment and you kind of find that beautiful middle ground where you're, you're both working in balance together. I think Robert's story really, really captures that fantastically. So as we're closing off, I want to thank the people who make this podcast possible. So again, SE Electronics, thank you so much. But I also want to mention um, Patrick McKechnie, who's our producer, Dave Larson, who is our engineer, and Tammy Levy, who does all of our design work. So without them, this podcast wouldn't exist. And you know, you're a great crew and I appreciate everything. So that's it for this episode. I'm your host, Aram Arslanian, and we will see you next time on One Step Beyond. One.